Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. Well, tell me if you agree with this statement. Every great story that you have ever heard, that has ever been told, has conflict at its center. I'd go so far as to say that a story without conflict isn't a story that anybody is interested in. So just think right now of some of your favorite movies or your favorite books or your favorite TV shows and tell me, all of them, right? All of them have some sort of a conflict at their core. Even every episode of a sitcom, 30 minutes long, has conflict at the core. And just like real life, they solve it in 30 minutes. Generally speaking, these conflicts can come from two places. Usually they either come from an outside source or they come from within the characters themselves. Now, as tempted as I am to use a Lord of the Rings illustration, I'll use an illustration that Jeff used a couple of weeks ago in the movie Star Wars. Now, what is the conflict, I ask you, of the movie Star Wars? Well, you say that's easy. It's the Empire. The Empire is out to destroy the rebels, and the movies are essentially about the good guys who are outnumbered and outgunned, fighting against the bad guys who hold all the power. And by the way, that is pretty much what every superhero that has ever been made movie is about, right? Bad guys versus good guys. We can't get enough of those stories, but I think there's another reason that Star Wars is such a better story than so many movies today. It's what makes them a great story. You see, there's a conflict that happens in Star Wars within the hearts of the characters. And the conflict is whether or not they're going to turn to the dark side or they're going to stay with the good side, the good guys. Of course, the most famous example of that inner conflict is with Luke Skywalker himself, who is fighting the baddest of the bad guys when it's revealed to him that he's actually his father. And it's such a powerful scene to see Luke struggling internally to know what to do. Is he going to go over to the dark side or is he going to remain pure and true and noble? Now I'll ask you, where did Star Wars get that idea? Where does every great story get this idea that conflict comes from both an outside source but also from within the people themselves? Well, they get it straight from the Bible. Every great story that's ever been told gets that idea from the Bible, and together we're going to look at it in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Now, just as a reminder, if you weren't able to join us the last couple of weeks, we started a series this new year called His Story, Our Story, where we're looking at the narrative arc of Scripture. In other words, really some of the 13 most important stories to understand to get the whole story of the Bible. Here's what we've been saying about this series. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Now, as a reminder, if you weren't able to make it last week because of the weather, we started God's story and our story with creation. In the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw last week that we were created by God, for God to do life with God. And that is where we left the story off. God placed Adam in a lush garden made even more wonderful by the addition of Eve, the perfect match for him. And here they are living in this beautiful, bountiful paradise in perfect fellowship with God and perfect fellowship with one another. Who could possibly want anything more? Well, 
This is where our conflict comes in. It's where the story picks up. So let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter three. If you have your own Bible, it's pretty early on in the story. If you're using one of the black Bibles in the seat underneath there, it's on page two. Genesis three is where God's story and our story takes its plot twist. It's why there is conflict in the world we discover. It's why there's hurt and pain and suffering, these questions we ask, these ultimate questions, right? If you're following on your notes, it answers the often asked question, why is there so much brokenness in this world? All of us know, probably from daily experience, that the world is deeply broken. War, poverty, strife, anger, divorce, natural disasters, winter. The list goes on and on, and we see it every night when we turn on the news. But what has caused the world to be this way? Well, for a Christian, for a Judeo-Christian worldview, Genesis 3 gives us the answer. And I would just say to you, this is one of the most fundamental passages for us if we want to understand God's story and our story. So let's pray. Well, Lord, as we open up your word once again this week, as we do every week, we say to you that our goal is not just to get some more information this morning. Our goal is to be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son, and you use your word to do that in our lives, if we will receive it that way. So as Jenny already said, let us be hearers of your word, yes, but also doers of it today. In Jesus' name, expectantly we pray, amen. Well, it starts in verse one with these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now I'll pause here because my first question is right away, like who in the world is this serpent? Is it a talking snake? Or is there something more going on here? Well, we're not actually given the answer in Genesis 3. That wasn't the purpose of the author's intention here. But we are told as God's story unfolds exactly who this is. This is Satan. Well, who's Satan? According to the Bible, if you're following on your notes, Satan is the enemy of God and of humankind. Every great story has an enemy, an outside enemy, and here we discover ours. Now, interestingly, the word serpent in Hebrew, which the Old Testament is written in, is the word nakish, and it actually has several meanings. Yes, most often it's interpreted as a serpent like a snake, but interestingly, it can also be uh, defined as divination or something with a shiny appearance. It's used other places in scripture to describe divinity. And so what I wanna suggest to you is this serpent is more than just a snake. This is a divine being, not equal with God, but in conflict with God and God's people. We learn later in the story that Satan was at one time an angel, an angel who sat at the right hand of God. He was around his throne, but he decided he wanted the throne. And so he tried to usurp God's power and authority. And so he, along with those who sided with him, were cast down out of heaven. Which brings new light, for me at least, to the end of this chapter when we're told that Satan is cast down to the earth. In verse 1 of Genesis 3, we see Satan begin his work of destruction. And he does it, like he still does it today, by getting Adam and Eve to question God's goodness. 
Would you read his question out loud with me there on your notes there? It says, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I just want you to notice what he's doing here. This is not an honest question. This is like an employee asking, can you really believe what the Bosque did this time? Can you really believe it? Can you really believe that God has forbidden you to eat the fruit from that tree? What is Satan doing here? If you're following, he tempts Eve to question God's goodness. So as the story unfolds, Satan wants to cast God as the part of cosmic party pooper. God doesn't want you to have any fun. God doesn't want you to enjoy life. God is going to hold out on you. Can you believe that God said that? (laughs) These are still Satan's tactics today. Nothing has changed. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, last week, Pastor Jeff touched on a question that bothered me immensely early on in my faith life, and the question probably that you've wondered as well, which is, why did God even create this tree in the first place? Like, why did he put it in the middle of the garden here? Why did he make it possible for Adam and Eve to even be tempted? And I was struggling with this so much, I ended up going to a youth leader of mine. And I asked him, and he gave me this profound answer that is yet so simple. He just looked at me and said, well, because God is love. I'm like, what? This seems like the opposite of love. And he goes, no, listen, love is always, by definition, a choice. Love cannot be forced. And so because God is love, and because he wants a relationship with us based on love, he created us with the ability to either love him or to not love him. If you have children, you understand this. You can't force your kids to love you. You can force them to obey you and respect you and all those things, but you can't force love. That is a choice that we make. And so if you're on your notes, because God is love, we are given the choice to love him. Another way to say this is God didn't want to create robots. He wanted to create human beings who are made in his image. And part of being a human being is the ability to choose. Even in God's good creation, Adam and Eve's freedom to love means they can also choose not to love. They can obey or they can choose to defy God. They can submit to God's rule and reign in their life or they can walk their own way. They can ignore his instructions and experience death. Verse 4. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. And here is the first direct contradiction of God. I love what D.A. Carson says about this verse. I put it up on the screen for you to follow along as I read it. The first doctrine to be denied according to the Bible is the doctrine of judgment. In many disputes about God and religion, this pattern often repeats itself because if you can get rid of that one teaching, then rebellion has no adverse consequences and so you are free to do anything. Do you understand what he's saying there? If I get rid of the consequences, I can live however I want. But Satan's not done. Not only does he say there's not going to be any consequences for your actions, but I'm going to promise you something. I'm going to promise you that my offer for you is even better. Look at what he says in verse 5. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the temptation Satan is offering them? The opportunity to be autonomous and independent. Again, I'll use kids as an illustration. This temptation happens right at about the age of two or three, when kids learn that awful word, no. Hey, I would need you to pick up your toys. No. Can you get in the car for mommy? No. Can you clean up your room? No. Sit down, we're about to eat dinner. No. What's going on there? They're expressing their independence, their autonomy. And that's Satan's offer to us when it comes to God. If you're falling on your notes, they're promised they can become their own gods. They can become their own gods, independent of God. Don't miss this. What Satan is trying to get into the heart of human beings is if you obey God, you're going to miss out. You won't be happy. He'll cut off the options for you. He'll keep you from being all that you were meant to be. You won't thrive and flourish. You won't have the good life. Therefore, he says, you can't trust God. You're going to have to take life into your own hands. And I promise you, I promise that's the path to the good life. That's where you'll find happiness. When you become your own God. And what is Eve's response? It's the same response all of us have made. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Taking the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve are saying, from now on, God, we want to be God. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to set the standards of what is right and wrong and good and true and noble. We want to be our own gods. And friends, if you only get one thing, one thing from this part of the story this morning, it's this. That is what the very nature of sin is. You cannot understand God's story. You cannot understand our story unless you understand this. What am I talking about? Well, let me ask you, what is sin? If somebody asks you, what is sin? How would you define that to them? Well, I'll give you a definition. At its heart, the heart of sin, if you're following, is that sin is putting myself in the place of God. Sin is putting myself in the place of God. Too many people, many Christians even, tend to think of sin as those bad things that I'm not supposed to do, right? Disobeying all the rules that God set up. Things like don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't gossip, don't be selfish. All the don'ts. All the things the Bible says don't do. Those are the rules, and so I sin when I break those rules. But to really understand God's story and our story, you have to see sin as something more than that. The reason we do those bad things, the reason we break God's rules is because of sin. We have all put ourselves in the place of God. We define for ourselves what is good and true and right. When I was in seminary, I had this Australian teacher, and he used to say this almost every class that we came to, and as much as I want to try his accent, I'm not going to. We would come, and he would say, now remember, sins, with a plural, are the naughty things that we do. Sin is why we do them. Sins are the naughty things that we do, but sin is why we do them. To understand your story, you have to understand this. 
God is saying to Adam and Eve, my children, I am God, and I'm going to create you. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you a world to enjoy. I want you to live, though, as if that's true, as if I am indeed God, that I know what is best for you, that I love you, and it's why I've placed these things in your life. Therefore, don't eat that fruit. This is your chance. You can either choose to treat me as God and to treat your life in the world as if it belongs to me, or you can put yourself in my place. To use an illustration that I spent hours working on this week, here is how God created it to be. And that's how it was. Sadly, Adam and Eve didn't trust God to be God in their lives, though. They wanted to be their own gods, and so here's what happened on that day. And it's been happening ever since. In every single human being's heart. The Bible refers to this sometimes as idolatry. Idolatry is at the heart of every single human being. How do I know it's at the heart of every single one of us in this room right now? How do I know? You don't know me. It's at the heart of all of us, because I'm gonna come full circle here, because we break God's rules. Because we do sins. We determine for ourselves that they're not important enough for us to obey. I don't trust God's wisdom on this issue. And so, I take the throne in my life, in, in my life instead of trusting him and obeying him. We think he's holding out on us, so I put myself in his place, and I'm going to determine what's good and right for me. Sins are the result of what? Sin. Do you know why you're tempted to take God's place? Because deep down in all of our hearts, we hear the same lie. If you obey, you won't be happy. If you obey God, you won't be happy. You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. He doesn't know what's right for your life. Only you could know that. And all of us have believed that at one point or another, yeah? Almost every day. Almost every day I'm confronted with this reality. Am I going to trust what God says about this or not? I'm going to trust my own wisdom. When I was in high school, I've shared this before. Like, I understood that I was to like, love my enemy, love my neighbor. It's one of the things God says to do, and yet I wanted to be popular more. Because I thought popular, popularity would bring me happiness. And so instead of loving my enemy, loving those who were unlovable, I shunned them just like everybody else. Did it bring me happiness? No. Friends, I think the biggest thing for us to understand, the biggest thing for you to understand, to understand his story and your story, is that all of us are Adam and Eve. All of us. All of us have made this choice. (coughs) Excuse me. It is the nature of sin. It's a great story at the beginning of the 20th century when the editors of the Times of London asked several famous writers to answer this question. What is wrong with the world? And a Christian apologist by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote back to the Times with this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's brilliant. It's a brilliant understanding of a Christian worldview about sin. Can you say that as well? I'm what's wrong with the world because I choose to be God. Starting in verse 7, we see the consequences of sin immediately begin to ripple. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter, so buckle up. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever." So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me just sum that all up with an illustration, and you're welcome to join me if you'd like. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. That pretty much sums up what we just read in these verses right here. Every relationship that God created to be good has been destroyed by sin. There is brokenness in the world because we broke it. And we can't put it back together again. In these verses, we see four key relationships that have been broken. Let's look at them quickly together. First, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with God is broken. In verse 8, we're told God comes walking in the garden in the cool of day. That is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture because that's what God always intended. Walking is a Hebrew idiom meaning friendship and community and relationship. So isn't that awesome? God comes walking with Adam and Eve, coming in friendship and community and relationship. But what happened? Sin causes us to hide. I mean, you really can't help but laugh at this picture, right? Adam and Eve trying to hide from God Almighty. Have you ever played hide and seek with a two-year-old? They try the same thing, right? You can't see me. You can't see me. And you try to act like, yep, that's a great spot you got there. Where are you? Why does sin cause us to hide from God? Because sin introduced fear and shame, and guilt, our constant companions still today. Adam and Eve hide themselves because they are naked. And as Jeff talked about last week, that doesn't just mean that they were without clothes. It means they were innocent and pure. They had no fear, no shame, no guilt. Oh, can you imagine life like that? 
They enjoyed perfect intimacy with God and with one another, but the result of their disobedience is that's all gone. So holy and pure is God, we see at the end of this chapter that sin disqualifies Adam and Eve from living in paradise anymore. And so they are banished from the garden. Sin has broken their ability to even be in God's presence. Second, our relationship with self is broken. Our relationship with self is broken. We don't talk about this enough, I don't think. But the idea behind Adam and Eve realizing they're naked and hiding is that they know deep down something is broken inside of them as well. Their eyes have indeed been opened as Satan promised. But they don't like what they see. They don't like what they see. Nakedness is a sense of guilt. There's something wrong with me. Nakedness is a sense of shame. I can't let people see me for who I really am. Nakedness is a sense of fear because if they know who I really am, they'll reject me. And so what do we do as human beings? We hide ourselves from others. We cover ourselves with fig leaves still to this day. You familiar with fig leaves? Things like money and power and success and fame and physical beauty. We think those things are gonna cover up fear, guilt, and shame, but they don't. They don't solve the problem. This internal brokenness is further evidenced by the way Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent. What's going on there? This is so important. What they're doing right there is called self-justification. You ever heard of this? Probably not, right? One of the inevitable results of fear, guilt, and shame is self-justification. Adam justifies himself. I'm not in the wrong. I've done nothing by blaming Eve. Eve does the same thing by blaming the serpent. We still do this today. It's not my fault. My parents made me this way. My brother made me do it. My sister made me do it. You didn't tell me clear enough. Self-justification is just one more example of idolatry, right? This idea that we think we can save ourselves. That we think we have it within ourselves to be our own gods. Thirdly, our relationship with one another is broken. We already saw this as this husband throws his wife under the bus just to save his neck. Relationship broken. Even the idea of the fig leaves, right? What's that all about? As soon as sin comes into their heart, they're covering themselves up from who? Yeah, from God, but he's not even there yet. So from one another. Why? Because we can't bear to let people know who we really are. And so we project this image to others. This is how I want you to view me. This is how I want you to know me. Fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves. Even worse, what happens is that relationships now are based on power instead of love. This is true on an individual level, but it's also true in a macro level. Think about it. Where do things like racism and sexism and classism even come from? <laughs> they come from relationships that were once based on mutual love and edification that have now turned into a power battle. We see this in verse 16 when God says to the woman, your desire will be to have your husband in order to control him and he will rule over her with a certain kind of power. There's sin on both sides here. They both want to be the ones who hold the power. So what we have here is the destruction of the marriage relationship. 
And as the story continues, every other relationship follows the same pattern. One of the things this story should make us do is reflect long and hard on what death means. You read this and go, well, they didn't actually die, didn't they? Something inside of them and between them dies. Their relationship is shattered. Lastly, our relationship with creation is broken. Verse 17 says, instead of just going out there and gardening and up comes flowers and food, you're going to be struggling. There's going to be thorns and thistles and weeds. The dust is no longer your friend. There is a lack of cohesion with the physical environment. Friends, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes. The whole created order that God created to be good is now not working properly. Paul says it in Romans 8, creation groans under the weight of sin. So those are the consequences of sin. That's why this part of his story and our story is referred to as the fall. In fact, you probably noticed I have Genesis 3 through 11 written there on your notes, and we're only going to talk about Genesis 3, but chapters 4 through 11 are part of this story that chronicle the downward spiral of the fall. If you've ever read this section of the Bible, if you're doing the Bible reading plan that our church is doing right now, you know, woo, it paints a pretty grim picture. Murder, rape, drunkenness, flooding, and more. Throughout this section, what's important to note is that people are moving further and further away from God and further and further away from one another, and death comes to the human race. Paradise is lost. Genesis 6-5 sums up this whole section of scripture this way. Would you read it on the screen with me? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Ugh. As Adam and Eve leave the garden, their future seems uncertain. Disobedience has brought catastrophe. The wonderful garden now lies closed behind them. And an uncertain, dangerous world lies ahead. What will happen to them? What can be done? Can the people of earth ever be reconciled to God again? Can they ever enjoy the fellowship that they had with one another again? And what about death? Is death really the inevitable end for all of us? Now you begin to understand the plot line of the Bible. If you're following on your notes, is there any hope for us in all of this brokenness. Is God's story over? What about our story? Well, thankfully, it's not over, otherwise this would have been a two-week series. You see, here in the midst of, even in this incredible disaster, we see what I would call several glimpses of hope. Today, we might call them foreshadowings. You know what foreshadowing is? Somebody puts a gun in a drawer in the beginning of a, meet, of, of a movie, you can pretty much guarantee later in the movie, you're going to get a picture of that gun back in the drawer, and it's going to be used in some way. There are what I would say three foreshadowings of hope in Genesis chapter 3, and I want to close with these this morning because we want to walk out of here with some hope. The first one is that God still seeks rebellious people out. God still seeks rebellious people out. While we hide from God, God still seeks us out. What is our nature? It's to hide. To hide from God, to hide from one another, to hide from myself. What is God's nature? God's nature is to seek. 
God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? And again, I'll just say, do you think God really needed that information? You don't think the God of the universe knew where they were? Of course not. So what's he doing here? He's reaching out to them in love. He's seeking them out. Notice even in verse 11, when he confronts them, he doesn't just bring the hammer down. He asks them questions. Why? Because he wants them to acknowledge for themselves what they've done wrong. God knows what they've done. But he wants them to acknowledge this. Isn't that something? We call that mercy. This seeking out is a foreshadowing of how every person will come to a restored relationship with God. Anybody who ever finds faith with God knows it's because God came after me. He sought me when I would have never sought him on my own. Why? Because I'm a hider. God is a seeker. The most famous verse in the entire Bible essentially says this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He sent him. He sought us out. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As we continue, God's story and our story, we'll see this over and over and over again, right? God is a God who seeks out rebellious people. He is patient. He is kind. Let me pause here and ask you, what is keeping you from letting God to seek you out? What are you hiding from? Will you stop hiding from God? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says. He is seeking you out. You simply need to invite him in to experience the life he wants to restore with you. Second glimmer of hope is that God covers sinful people with a sacrifice. God covers sinful people with a sacrifice. Would you read verse 21 on your notes with me out loud there? It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Fig leaves, they're just not going to cut it anymore now that they're going to be outside of the garden. And so God protects them and gives them animal skins. Now, I'm going to throw you a softball question. What had to happen in order for God to provide those animal skins? Something had to die. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a death. Many people over the years have noticed this seems to be a hint, a foreshadowing towards the sacrificial system that God would establish with his people in the tabernacle and the temple, but ultimately culminate in the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on a cross. Interestingly, the word atonement simply means covering. Therefore, when God clothes Adam and Eve with the sacrifice, how can we not look at it and go, that is a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the day when there's gonna be another sacrifice of atonement, of covering, but this one will no longer be temporary. It's a sacrifice John mentions in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God. Again, we, we don't naturally seek him but that he loved us and sent his son as a covering for our sins. Pause here again. What are you covering yourself with right now? How are those fig leaves working for you? When will you allow the sacrifice of Jesus to cover you once and for all? Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, but because he wants to give it to you as a gift of grace. Third glimmer of hope is found in verse 15. Can we read that out loud on our notes? It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I, 
I'm not exaggerating saying maybe one of the most important verses. What's this foreshadowing? If you're following on your notes, God promises to crush Satan and death one day. So important is this verse, many people have called it the first gospel. Do you know what it's a picture of? Here's how Tim Keller describes it. Listen, imagine a group of people, a family, and into the midst of them comes a slithering as fast as it can, a snake, a venomous snake, a poisonous snake coming right at them. One man goes after the snake and he begins to stomp on it. Finally, he crushes the head and saves the family, but only after, in the process, the snake bites him, the poison goes into him, and he dies. That's the picture. Now, what makes this amazing to me is we know this isn't just a snake. This is Satan. And so God is essentially saying one day, a very descendant from Adam and Eve is going to come, a human being, and he is going to undo everything that Satan has done. But in the process of crushing him, he will receive a fatal wound. A human being is going to come, and he's going to destroy sin and death, but in the process, he will lose his life. Who could this possibly be talking about? It's a powerful image of what Jesus accomplished for us, isn't it? Some of you have probably seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And that movie opens with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knows his hour has come, the time for him to offer the sacrifice to cover our sins once and for all. And this snake comes on him, and we see Jesus stand up at that moment, and you see this. He crushes his head, and he walks into his destiny, his destiny to give his life for my life. Why? So that I could have life with him once again. So I'll ask you, are you standing in that victory today? If you're not and you're thinking, I don't know how to do that, what do I do? Well, it's a really simple thing. You simply acknowledge in your heart, I am a sinner. Oh, he said that word. I don't like that word. These church people, they talk about that all the time. Sinner. You cannot understand the gospel, the good news, until you understand that you're a sinner, that I'm a sinner. We don't like that word anymore in our culture, but it's our story. I have decided in my life I'm going to be my own God. I have trusted myself to be Lord over him. Until one day, Jesus came on the scene and he says, repent. Change your mind about that way of thinking because it's only leading you to death. Change your mind and give me the place that I deserve on the throne of your life. And I will crush Satan's head in your life. I will crush death in your life. I will crush the consequences of sin in your life. So friends, let me ask you, if you're on your notes, have I acknowledged my sin? Not just the bad things I do. Have I acknowledged my sin and that my only hope is in Christ? You can do that today. He's still seeking people out. Will you receive that gift? As we wrap up, you put your stuff away. Let me just say again, this is where the Bible could have ended. The Bible could have been three chapters long. There's no reason God should do anything to help us, but he is a gracious God. And he wants to establish his kingdom again. He wants people to come under his reign and rule and his authority. 
And in our next message in this series, we're going to see God begin to work toward that wonderful end in the most surprising of ways. We hope that you can join us as we continue his story and our story. Let's pray. Lord, we just still ourselves right now and we quiet ourselves. And we'd be remiss not to use some of this time just for silent confession. Confession is such a gift. It's a way of us to be cleansed. So we want to use this to just acknowledge to you that all of us, I have taken the place you deserve in my life. Sometimes that happens every day. So we just want to name that to you. also want to reflect on the incredible news that you didn't leave us in our sin. Though we hide, you seek. Though we cover ourselves with things that do not last, you covered us with the blood of Jesus Christ. Though we toil and struggle by temptation, you have given us everything we need in Jesus Christ to stand in victory. good God. Help us not to believe the lie. You have our best in mind. You are a God of love, a God of grace. For any person in this room who hasn't received that grace yet, speak to them today. Do what you've done for thousands of years. Make your story a part of their story. Reveal yourself. He stands at the door and he knocks, friend. Will you let him in? For those of us who have done that. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.